Chapter Eighteen of Mr. Trunnell, Mate of the Ship Pirate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mr. Trunnell, Mate of the Ship Pirate, by T. Jenkins Haynes, Chapter Eighteen. When the pirate neared us, we could make out a man coming down the ratlines from the foretop, showing that she had evidently sighted us even before we had her. As she drew nearer still, we could see Trunnell standing on the weather side of the poop, holding to a backstay and gazing aloft at his canvas, evidently giving orders for the watch to bear a hand and lay aft to the braces. He would lay his mainyards aback and heave her too. Along the high topgallant rail could be seen faces— and on the quarter-deck Mrs. Sackett stood with our friend Thompson, better known in the Antipodes as Jackwell, the burglar. As I watched him standing there pointing to us, I thought of poor Jim. "'Wheel down!' I heard Trunnell bawl as the ship came within fifty fathom. "'Slack away that lee brace! Steady your wheel!' Before the ship's headway had slackened, we had out the oars and were rowing for her. In a moment a sailor had flung us a line, and we were towing along at the mizzen channels, with the men climbing aboard as fast as they could. Miss Sackett was passed over the rail, and her mother took her below. I was the last one except Johnson to climb up. He stood at the bow, ready to hitch on the tackles. But other men took his place, and as I went over the rail Thompson came and shook my hand warmly. "'Sink me, Mr. Rawling, but you've had a time of it, hey?' he said. How are the men on the Sovereign? We've been standing along north and south for six days, expecting to pick you up, and here you are. It's all that Trunnell's doings. I was for going ahead the day we missed you, but that big-headed little rascal insisted on hunting for you after seeing you leave the wreck. Where's Jim and Philippi, and the rest? The sincerity of his welcome had taken me off my guard, and I found myself standing there shaking his hand. Then I recovered myself. "'It's a pity Captain Thompson missed this ship the day she sailed,' I said quietly. "'We were informed the night before that he'd be with us. It might have saved the lives of some good men.' He let go my hand and smiled strangely at me, his hooked nose working, and his eyes taking that hard glint I knew so well. "'So you were really waiting for a man you'd never seen, hey? "'Was that the lay of it? "'And when I came aboard and said I was Thompson, "'you gulped down the bait. "'Hey, you bleeding fool! "'Who the dickens do you think I am, anyhow?' "'I happen to know that you pass by the name of Jackwell,' I said. "'Here, Chips,' I called, "'but the carpenter was already at my side. "'What name did Jim give the captain, "'and what was his business?' "'Tis no use of making any more of it, Cap'n. We know all about you. The best thing you can do is a step down from the quarter-deck.' "'Trunnell,' said Thompson, with his drawl, "'what do you think of these men coming back clean daft?' The mate was close beside us, giving orders for the disposal of the small boat, and he turned and clasped my hand for the first time. "'Mighty glad to see you both back. I suppose the rest are aboard the Sovereign,' said he, looking us over. And they came aboard with a tale that I'm some other man than Captain Thompson, that I knew that he was coming, and got aboard before him and went out in his place, said Jackwell. 
Sink me, Trunnell, but I'm afeard you'll have to put them in irons. That's queer enough, said the mate with a smile. Come below, Rollin, and let's have your yarn. You too, Chips, you'll need a nip of good stuff as well. I'm sorry you've turned up with a screw loose. All right, Cap'n. Square away when you're ready. The boat's all right. And the little bushy-headed fellow turned and led the way down over the poop, entering the forward cabin, where the steward was waiting to tell us how glad he was we had turned up, and also serve out good grog with a meal of potatoes and canned fruit. I was so tired and hungry from the exertion of the past twenty-four hours that I went below without further protest, Chips following sullenly. "'I's sure enough glad to see you folks again, Mars Rawling,' said the steward. "'Take a little of the stuff that warms and invigorates.' We fell to and ate heartily, and while we did so we told our story. Trunnell sat, and every now and again scratched his bushy head with excitement and interest while we told of the way Andrews had done. When we told how Jim had come to be aboard the pirate, he walked fore and aft on the cabin deck, shaking his head from side to side, and muttering. "'Was Jim the only one who knew about the business?' he asked. We told him he was, and that no one but Chips and myself had heard what the detective had said. Trunnell sat with his hands in his hair for the remainder of the time we were filling ourselves. He said nothing further until Chips made some remark about us taking the ship in. Then he arose and stood before us. "'It may be as you say, Rawling. I'd hate to doubt your word, and don't, in a way, so to speak. But discipline is discipline. You men know that. Our captain comes aboard with a letter saying as he's the Thompson what'll take the ship out. We has orders to that effect from the owners. It ain't possible another man could a known of the things so quick, and come aboard to take his place. Leastways, we hain't got no evidence but the word of a sailor who's dead, to the contrary. It may be as you say, but we'll have to stick to this fellow until we take soundings. When we gets in, then you may tell your tale and find men to back it. Don't say no more about it while we're out, for it won't do no good— it may get you both in irons. "'Twas a devil you had for a shipmate when Andrews went with you. A terrible man, sure enough. I've insisted on standing backwards and forwards along the track for nearly a week, in hopes we'd pick you up, and have nearly had trouble with the old man for waiting so long. He's heard of the fracas, and will stand along to pick up his third mate. I don't know as he'll care for Andrews, but he'll take the girl-mate, sure, if he's afloat.' "'There's no use of making any bones of the matter, Mr. Trunnell,' said Chips. "'That third mate and the murderin' devil ain't comin' aboard this here ship. If they do, I'll kill em myself when they comes over the side.' And he arose, lugging out the revolver he had taken from the ruffian at the close of the fight. I stepped into my room and brought forth my own, handing Chips some cartridges for his. "'I think the men will stand to us in the matter, Trunnell,' I said. The little mate looked sorrowfully at us both, and shook his great head slowly. "'Tain't no use of making a fuss,' he said at last. "'Discipline is discipline, and you knows it. If the captain wants them fellows aboard, aboard they comes, and no one here can stop them. There's only one captain to a ship. When his orders don't go, there's blood and mutiny and piracy and death aboard. 
Put up your guns. Don't let's say no more about it, till we raise them, for maybe they're gone under by this time. We won't reach the wreck anyways afore night. It happened as he said. When we went on deck, the pirate had swung her yards and was standing along in the direction we had come. Thompson, or rather Jackwell, walked fore and aft on the weather side of the poop, and gazed at each turn of the horizon ahead. A lookout was posted in the foretop, while the rest of the men lounged about the decks and discussed the situation and the tragedy of the day before. Chips was for open mutiny, and Johnson backed him. All our men were in sympathy with us, and some were so outspoken that they could be counted on if a fresh fracas occurred. The majority, however, were so well under control that they appeared to be satisfied to obey orders under any conditions. The Englishmen were neutral. All except Jenks were silent, or advised the recognition of the established authority, telling how we could square matters afterward with our enemies. This shows how a sailor is at the mercy of any one who has been established in authority. If he resists in any manner, he is mutinous, and is liable to the severest penalties. Here we were, with every prospect of having Andrews and our third mate on board again, to go through some other horror, unless we turned pirates and took the ship. This was a risky thing to attempt, for if successful, and there was any bloodshed, we would certainly either swing or pass under a heavy sentence. That is, of course, if we failed to prove that Thompson was the rascal Jim had told us he was. On the other hand, if we failed, there was the absolute certainty of being at the mercy of the rascal's cruelty, unless Trunnell would be able to control them all. The little mate was a strange character. He believed in obeying orders under any conditions whatever, unless absolute proof could be had that the one who gave the orders was unauthorized to do so. In spite of his friendship for me, I knew full well that he would die rather than disobey the captain, no matter what the order was, provided he considered it a legitimate one. The fact that the men had committed horrible crimes did not in any manner disinherit them from the ship, in his opinion. They should be dealt with afterward according to the law. I took no part in an argument. Neither did Trunnell or the skipper. They both seemed satisfied of their position, and took no pains to talk to the men as if they suspected a rising. I stood in the waist, and remained looking steadily at the horizon until the sun dipped, and there was every prospect that night would come before we raised the black mast of the wreck. My pistol was in my pocket, ready for instant use, and I saw by the bunch under Chips's coat that he was also ready. His small black moustache was worked into points, under the pressure of his nervous fingers, and he sat on the hatch-combings apart from all, save Johnson. The sailor walked athwartships before him on the deck, as if to get the stiffness out of his little legs, which seemed now thinner than ever, as the setting sun shone between them through the curious gap. The upper limb of the red sun was just touching the line of water, when the man in the foretop hailed the deck. "'Wreck on weather bow, sir,' he bawled. My heart gave a great jump, and I looked at Chips. Johnson made a movement with his hand as if holding a knife, and went to the weather rail and looked over. "'Weather main topsail brace,' came the call from Trunnell. The men came tumbling aft and took their places. 
"'Lee braces, Mr. Rolling,' he called again, and I crossed the deck, knowing that he would jammer as high as he could to make as far to windward as possible before darkness set in. We braced her sharper, and she pointed a bit higher, but she could not quite head up to the black stick that showed above the horizon. The wind, however, was steady, and under her royals the pirate was about the fastest and prettiest ship afloat. She heeled gently to the breeze and went through it to the tune of seven knots, rolling the heft of the long sea away from her clipper bows, and tossing off the foam without a jar or tremble. I looked hard at the distant speck which was now just visible from the deck, and wondered how Andrews and his crew felt. I could see nothing of the sovereign's hull, and hope rose within me. I found myself saying over and over again to myself, "'She's gone under! She's gone under!' Then, just before it grew too dark to see any longer, I went aft and took up the glass. Through it, the black forecastle of the wreck showed above the sea. End of chapter